I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So in this episode, we had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with none other than Dr. Allison DuPont. So Dr. DuPont is an interventional cardiologist with Northside Hospital Cardiovascular Institute. And within her practice, she has taken a special interest in treating uh, and really understanding how to treat the sickest of the sick. The patients, not only with STEMI, but those that are in cardiogenic shock and now progressing to those uh, that even need ECMO. So she is actually the uh, ECMO director for Northside Hospital, uh, as well as the medical director uh, for the cardiac care unit. Uh, she has been the principal investigator um, on several studies, one uh, specifically being a nationwide study looking at methods for improving outcomes in patients with cardiogenic shock. And she has she is seen uh, as a national leader in that space. Yeah. And, and not only that, she is an incredible person in the way of being an EMS physician champion. She has a track record of pouring into EMS at various conferences, you know, speaking at conferences, getting involved in the EMS education. And also she has been involved with setting up STEMI systems of care that involve EMS heavily as one of the most important pinnacles of these systems. Uh, so without further ado, folks, we hope you enjoy the episode and let's get to know Dr. DuPont a little better. <laughs> my dogs are might bark and then we'll have to just tune them out oh, good, fine. and i do have kids too so you know they may interrupt me. do they bark too um they do not but they do harass me <laughs> tell them being suspect question everything uh, you say oh don't think, say the whole word man that's well, makes well, it sound old. i'm thinking i'm thinking goodwill hunting you suspect is that not is that not what we're talking about? It's, oh. it's, it's just sus. Sus. You're like sus. sustenance. Or like sketch. Yeah. You're so sketch. Yeah. yeah. Dr. DuPont, how's it going? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Appreciate the invitation. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this for months. Yeah. <laughs> not really. But. You're, yeah. so, you're such a good liar. Since you just found out about us yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Why is the name so long? Medic class citizen. What? <laughs> well, no, but really, thanks. Um, thanks for for hanging out with us. So, before we start, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? All that yeah, kind of stuff. Sure. So i um, I grew up in Indiana. I was born in Indianapolis. Um, Colts fan. In, I I was. You like Peyton Manning? Not really so much anymore. Um, and then after medical school in Indiana, I went to uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So I did um, my residency as well as my, uh, my internal medicine residency, my general cardiology fellowship, and then um, my interventional cardiology fellowship at UNC Chapel Hill. And then um, following fellowship, I moved down to Georgia to start practice. Um, I chose internal medicine because it kind of left all the doors open for me. I thought maybe I wanted to be a surgeon actually, whenever I was in um, college. And uh, I quickly realized that if I did that, that I probably would be closing some doors. And I, I wasn't exactly sure what type of surgeon I would want to be. And I also just enjoyed the, the more thinking aspect of medicine. 
Uh, hopefully I don't offend anybody by saying <laughs> Then but, being a surgeon, but, well, yeah. And <laughs> since But uh, but I really like the you know the intellectual aspects of it. Um even just as much as the procedural aspects. So that's why I decided to do medicine. And then um, within the medicine residency, I just absolutely fell in love with cardiology. And there's really no other field that I even considered doing, to be honest. I mean, it's just such a fast growing, um, changing field, so challenging and so gratifying. Um, and I, I had told my husband, whenever we moved to North Carolina that I was going to do internal medicine and then I was going to start practice. Well, then I said, well, actually I'm going to do this cardiology fellowship. So we'll be here for another three years making <laughs> no money. <laughs> um, yeah. As, yeah. As Jason knows is the residents don't make a lot of money. So, um, and then after that, I was like, well, I kind of want to do this extra year of interventional cardiology and He's like, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> um, but it, but you know, it all it all was worth it in the end. It was so you didn't you didn't start out saying you were going to be an interventional cardiologist. That was kind of a progression. It it really was. I, mean, I actually, believe it or not, I know a lot of people say this, but I wanted to be a doctor since I was like eight years old. That's awesome. Uh, in fact, when I was this is really really nerdy, um, but when I was in fifth grade. My mom reminded me of this at Thanksgiving dinner the other day. I had taken for my fifth grade science fair project. I took a bunch of like PVC tubing, like flexible PVC, kind of like ECMO um, circuit plastic Perfect, tubing. Yeah. Of course. And, uh, and filled it and put and dripped wax into it and then put like food coloring and water, red food coloring. So it would look like arteries with plaque in them. And then I demonstrated to, you know, everybody, I had this whole presentation about atherosclerosis. That's I'm not awesome. kidding. It was fifth grade. That's weird. So that's how nerdy I am. Yeah. Fifth grade, I was playing with my belly button. That's, that's <laughs> all I was doing. <laughs> what, uh, what brought you towards the uh, interventional side? What was it that was a little more appealing about that? I think it's... Um, the the procedural aspect and getting the instant I, I hate to say this but the it's kind of true the instant gratification that you get with treating particularly STEMI patients and shock patients um, seeing these patients turn around so quickly I mean you you know you have a STEMI coming in that's an extremist that is having you know severe chest pain or they're in shock and you open their artery and literally within minutes the tables have turned and they're like a new person. Yeah, and I saw that when I was a, a cardiology fellow, and, and I couldn't get enough of it. They they couldn't get me out of the cath lab. That's <laughs> they <awesome. had> tried. <laughs> um, so you know, it's it, part of it's the instant gratification, but it's just such an amazing thing to be able to see these patients progress through when they're at their sickest to then following up with you in the office and seeing how amazing they're doing. And it's the same with it's the same with our ECMO patients. You know, maybe even more so because they're even sicker than a lot of the, the STEMI patients are. Yeah. So, okay. So you went through this progression of um, medicine to cardiology to interventional cardiology, but then even in your interventional practice, how did you move even beyond, I mean, I don't want to say just an interventional cardiologist, but um, wh where was the mindset? that made you want to even continue that growth as an interventional cardiologist to some of the more complex things, like you mentioned, STEMI and shock? Yeah, though I think that's a good question. It's, as an interventional cardiologist, you see a lot of 
um, variety in terms of how sick patients are when they're coming in with these infarcts. And unfortunately, all of us have seen patients that we thought were going to do well that subsequently deteriorated um, or patients who came in really sick who we could not save. Um, and it, there have been cases um, throughout my career, my early career, where I felt like there had to have been something else that I could have done for this patient, you know, and you, as a, as a interventional cardiologist, personally, I lose a significant amount of sleep every time a patient dies. Um, mm. you know, if a patient dies on the cath table, it's, you know, it's several weeks of lost sleep for me. And I think there's probably a lot of physicians that, that feel that way. Um, and so as a result of feeling that way on multiple occasions, I decided instead of just continuing with the same, the same procedural um, algorithms that we were using, that we probably need to step it up a notch. And one of the things that we started, you know, initially we started with um, Impella, so the percutaneous left ventricular assist devices, which are the a catheter that sits inside the, the the left ventricle of the heart and pulls blood from the left ventricle and pumps it into the aorta. So it's like a little mini percutaneous pump. Percutaneous meaning it goes through the skin instead of a surgical implantation. So we started with that and that's still available and, and we still do a fair num number of those as well. Um, and we got into a protocol that um, started in Detroit, which is called the Detroit Cardiogenic Shock Initiative, which subsequently progressed into the National Cardiogenic Shock Initiative, which is when we got involved. And what that was, was it was a registry that um, enrolled patients who had cardiogenic shock, not randomized, just en enrolled every patient that came with cardiogenic shock that was treated with mechanical support. And it looked at how patients did with early mechanical support versus later support. And it really showed that patients who get supported earlier, and by support, I mean help the, the ventricle pump. So if the ventricle is struggling to pump, we do something mechanically with a percutaneous assist device of some sort to help offload some of that work of the heart. And that protocol that we were part of before was um, has, has now been published. There's been multiple publications now that have shown that early support is better. Um, and that, that's true for, for the vast majority of patients that are in cardiogenic shock. It's not for every STEMI patient, but for patients who, are, who we diagnose with cardiogenic shock, um, we know that the earlier we do the support, the better. So um, let me one, let me ask you let me ask you with that. So you said that you're part of this thing of the National Shock Initiative, um, especially with part of the initial registry, uh, and when you were part of that in the um, in the in the early stages, was that something that they reached out to you? You reached out to them, how, and then um, how did you start to become kind of part of this uh, shock community mm -hmm. that you're a part of now? Um, it was actually through a lot of um, networking. So I actually traveled to Detroit um, and met with them when I had heard about it. Um, I wanted to do a couple things. One is to learn the protocol that they were using because I had heard about this protocol in Detroit. And the other thing I wanted to do there was to learn how to do alternative access for 
these impella devices, these, these assist devices that I'm describing to you. And um, so, so what they do in some patients that have severe peripheral disease where they have blockages in, in their legs and you can't get a large catheter in, these are what we call large bore catheters. It's, um, they're, they're quite large in diameter. So you have to have a pretty decent sized vessel to stick that in. And if a patient has a lot of disease, you can't safely do that. So they, they developed um, a, a way to obtain axillary access. So they put it, instead of going in through the groin, they put it in through the axillary artery in the chest. And they do that percutaneously. So I learned from them. I wanted to go there and learn how to do that, which I did. But in the, in the meantime, while I was there, um, I, I networked with a lot of them. And um, they, they basically reached out to me after that and said, hey, you know, we're interested in getting some centers in Georgia um, and we'd like you guys to participate because you're a high volume um, uh, center and we'd like to have, um, have you guys enrolling in the registry. So we ended up um, partnering with them and there's been, I, I can't remember the exact number of, of hospitals that are now involved with NCSI. Um, it's no longer enrolling. All the publications have been completed, but there was a large number of hospitals at one point we were the only one in Georgia that was um, enrolling them. Um, so that's how I kind of got my foot in the door with the cardiogenic shop community. Um, and then through, you know, involvement with the Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Intervention, SKY um, organization, and with the American College of Cardiology networking, um, those have also helped. And then I think the biggest thing that for me was, was starting our ECMO program because there, there are so few ECMO programs, believe it or not, um, around the country. So it's, it's a pretty small knit community um, and, a, and a lot of us know each other. And so that's, that's the other thing is, is starting the ECMO program was probably opening a lot of doors. Yeah. So, so tell us about that. So, you know, with the, uh, with the impella and, and we've actually um, spoken to some other people and, and we've, we've done some uh, some stuff on impella. So I think uh, people listening are somewhat familiar with that. So as, uh, as the years went by and we're doing impella a good bit, as you were doing that, um, what was the impetus then to kind of go to not, you know, if we call it the next stage or mm -hmm. another thing in the toolbox of ECMO, um, but really before we get into too much on what ECMO is and how it works, what was that impetus for you to start that program? I think, so there are, are going to be patients that you can't get enough support with Impella. And no matter how early you put that Impella in, you can only get about three to three and a half liters of cardiac output with that. And as we know, that is not, that's often not enough, you know, especially in larger patients, which in Georgia, we have a fair amount of larger patients. So for those patients and for patients who have, you know, cardiogenic shock for another cause like right ventricular failure, you know, let's say they have an inferior infarct, um, if they have an RV failure or they have a pulmonary embolus with right ventricular failure, putting a left ventricular assist device is not going to help that patient. So you limit yourself to only treating left ventricular failure. So if you want to think outside of that, then you've got to go to another type of support device. And there are different options. But we chose to go down the route of doing extracorporeal membrane oxygenation because you can also support patients that have primary lung failure 
you know, respiratory failure in the absence of any cardiac failure and um, save a lot of those patients as well. Now, the, the ECMO in adults, um, and, and I've talked about this in other talks I've done before, it's, it's been around for a while, but it really didn't get, it didn't gain popularity until, until around 2009 when, when the H1N1 pandemic happened. And then it started to increase exponentially. The, um, the pandemic, this pandemic that we're in right now, has increased that even more. So there's yeah. been many, many more centers that have come online since that started. Okay, but but back up for just a second, because you said um, when you had started your initial program, there weren't a lot of ECMO centers. Um, so number one, why is that? And number two, you know, with that, what is the investment, not only from a hospital system, but from a physician, you know, as we're looking at creating something like this, what, what, has to, what actually goes into it? Why is it so difficult? I'd say that it is probably one of the most resource intensive therapies that we can provide in a hospital, hands down. And the reason is that the amount of education that is required to, to have the nurses be able to sit pump um, safely and feel comfortable with that is an incredible amount of education. The, it's, so it's not just a financial investment, it is a huge time investment. You know, you've got to educate these nurses and they've got to do um, not only written testing, but wet labs. So they have, to, they have to demonstrate that they are able to be proficient in taking care of these patients. Um, you also have to have a multidisciplinary team. So you really have to have the buy-in of critical care, respiratory therapy, physical therapy, you know, um, administration, the, the nursing staff in the intensive care units, um, the surgeons, I mean, there's vascular surgery. There's just so many people that have to be involved. And so the planning of, for starting a, a new program does not involve just purchasing the hardware and then throwing a patient on ECMO. The pumps themselves are very expensive, but that's not really the, I don't think that that's really the main limitation for most hospitals. I think it's just the amount of resources that, that are utilized um, to prepare for an ECMO program and also to, to sustain a patient, one single patient on ECMO involves multiple nurses every 24 hours. So you, you don't just have one nurse, you have generally a bedside nurse as well as an ECMO nurse. Um, and so it's, there's, there's a lot that goes into taking care of these patients once they're on. So it's really, um, you really have to have the infrastructure and planning in place to do a program like this. Yeah. And I appreciate you explaining that because, you know, as we were telling you before we started recording, um, ECMO in the pre-hospital world, you know, obviously it's not something that we get to see that often as paramedics, um, unless you're working in a lab somewhere as a technologist with interventionalists like yourself. Um, but you know, there are people who think that it's a brand new thing and that it's a plug and play, you know, because they've heard of programs that are starting to transport ECMO and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I just think that the understanding of the resources that are involved is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, There's, there's also a lot of selection that has to go into these patients. mm. There are programs that, that um, that I don't think really have that down the right way, um, and we'll just 
put pretty much any patient on ECMO. And I think when you're putting that much resource into, into putting a patient on ECMO, you really have to put a patient on that you feel will benefit from it. You know, this is not a, nobody dies without first trying ECMO type of technology. I mean, this is, we need to see that we need to feel that this patient's going to get better, you know? And if you don't, then there's the ECMO is not, not a magic bullet. Right. Can you, can you explain um, exactly what is ECMO? You know, if you, if you break down the physiology, how it works, um, sure. so on yeah. and so forth. It is, long story short, it's a, it's a heart lung bypass machine. So it is utilized. First of all, it does not treat any underlying condition. It is purely to support a patient through whatever insult they have suffered. So whether it be cardiac or respiratory or both. So the way that it works is it, it has the capability of supporting the lungs and or the heart and lungs together. And in, in order to do that, what we do is we remove the blood, kind of like a dialysis machine, um, but a large volume of blood. So these are large cannulas. Um, they kind of look a little bit like a garden hose. If you look, I mean, they're pretty large cannulas. <laughs> When you, when you say large cannulas, d- describe that. I mean, you know, in, in EMS, you know, we're dealing with IV catheters and, yeah. and French side uh, and, and that kind of area, yeah. you know, the so, gauge. So um, <coughs> the, the, the cannulas that we use for some of our venovenous, for example, or some of our lung failure patients, those will, will put one cannula in the neck um, and it performs both functions of returning the blood and removing the blood. And that one is about, um, 32 French and 32 French is about a little over 10 10 millimeter. So it's about a centimeter, a centimeter in diameter. That's an NPA. Like that's, you can literally, yeah, it's bigger. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's bigger than an NPA. It's very big. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's actually probably about, um, uh, an ET tube. An endotracheal tube. Yeah, that's Gosh. a good that's a good analogy. Maybe it's slightly, maybe just a little bit bigger than that. Yeah, yeah. Go um, ahead and put that in my neck for me one time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you know, there are some places, believe it or not, that are doing awake ECMO. Oh, good. Um, yeah, with with having the patient not not even intubated yet, yeah. and um, it, but but I, I I do imagine that might be a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. All of our patients are are very heavily sedated. Um, and they're going on ECMO because Bless you. <laughs> yeah, they they failed they failed the ventilatory therapy. So, you know this this is for patients. Before I talk about how exactly the the device works, it, it's for patients who, despite conventional mechanical ventilation, they continue to be hypoxic or hypercapnic. So you can't get their oxygen level up. You can't get their CO two down. Um, and so. And, then, and that's despite maximum ventilatory support. And in the case of COVID, mm. it's despite proning, par- paralyzing the patient, and maximizing the ventilator. And if all that fails, which it frequently does, then they end up on ECMO. So the, the, the way that the ECMO device works is that we remove the venous blood from, essentially remove it from the inferior vena cava. So... Um, if we put a, if we put a tube up here, we're really removing it directly from the right atrium or the, and the SVC, but 
for simplicity's sake, let's imagine, because I don't have a diagram to show you, but let's imagine we're going to just remove the blood from the inferior vena cava, which with a very large tube. That blood then goes through a centrifugal pump. Um, it goes through plastic tubing out of the body into a centrifugal pump. That pump pumps the blood through the membrane lung. The membrane lung, or what we call the oxygenator, adds the oxygen to the blood, removes the carbon dioxide, and then it goes through a, a heater cooler, which is basically a water bath that will bring the, the, the temperature back to the patient's body temperature so mm -hmm. that we don't make the patient too hypothermic. And um, as the blood comes back, it will go back and direct it into the heart. So if the patient has respiratory failure, that blood that's coming back into the right side of the heart, into the right atrium, is going to already have the oxygen in it. So that blood is then pumped through the right side of the heart, already oxygenated, and is returned to the left side and, and pumps through the rest of the body. So that type of ECMO where we are supporting just the lungs requires that the patient's heart pumps blood around, okay? So we can't use that type of ECMO in a patient that has heart failure, okay? If, if they've had a, a cardiogenic shock, for example, that won't work. So in those cases, what we do is we remove the blood the exact same way, all right? So we remove it through the inferior vena cava and goes through the pump exactly the same way. But when we return the blood, it will go into the iliac. So it's the, the tip of the catheter of the cannula is positioned in the distal aorta, okay? So the, the cannula is inserted into the femoral artery in the groin and the tip of it points into the distal aorta. So then the blood goes retrograde up into the aorta and into the arch. So the coronary arteries and the great vessels are filling via retrograde oxygenated blood. And if the heart's not functioning, like a patient that I put on not too long ago that had asystole for 24 hours and the heart's basically, you know, it's, it's not contributing anything because it's wow. not pumping, then all of the blood that, that, that the great vessels and coronaries are seeing is coming from the ECMO machine. Um, and as the patient's heart starts to recover, we can give them less and less of the flow through ECMO and let the heart do more and more of the work. And now when you explain those two uh, physiologies on how the, how the machine works, um, the first one was VV ECMO. Correct? That's right. And then the second one that you explained is VA ECMO. That's right. So v, VV or veno venous ECMO is where we take the blood out of a vein and we return it to the venous system. Nice. So if we return it to the venous system, we have to return it to the right atrium. When we say veno venous, it's removed from the vein, returned to the right side of the heart. And, and, the, and the, the right side or the lungs don't have to do anything because we've already done the work of the lungs, but we do need the heart to pump the blood back to the left side. Okay, so it goes through the lung, circulatory system already oxygenated and is returned to the left side of the heart. And who are those patients? <clears throat> those are patients who have acute respiratory failure only. So right now, mainly what we're seeing is COVID-19 patients. Yeah. Mm. Um, but, you know, before this pandemic, there was a lot of H1N1, a lot of influenza. We would see um, post-operative ARDS. Um, you know, you can have medical patients that come in with other, other kinds of pneumonia that develop ARDS. And, and it really works very, very well for those patients because what it allows you to do is you can, you can rest the lungs. Okay, mm. The whole goal is to allow the lungs to rest, stop 
stop um, ventilating so hard. So you don't provide all that barotrauma into the lungs that the ventilator is pushing into the lungs. Ventilators are not benign at all. Right. Um, there's a lot of barotrauma that's caused to the lungs from, from high settings on a ventilator. So um, by resting the lungs, we turn down the ventilator to minimal settings, provide just enough to inflate the lungs, just a, a small amount, and we just let the lungs rest it out and while we provide all the gas exchange. So that's for patients who have primarily ARDS or some other lung injury. Um, you can use it for asthmatics. So patients mm. who have, you know, young asthmatic patients that have um, severe exacerbations where you can't clear their CO2 with the, ox with the ventilator, they're perfect for ECMO. We don't see a lot of that. Um, I think a lot of those patients end up going to the children's hospital, but um, in our practice, so we don't see a lot of that, but those are great candidates, you know, young, young kids. Yeah. Does this work well for PE? Yeah. So it, it does work well for PE. Um, so on, on the veno arterial side, when you have to support the heart, a lot of people have the misconception that, um, that PE, that people die from PE because they get very hypoxic. And that's not at all what happens is what happens is the, the, the large amount of clot burden in the, in the pulmonary arteries causes the right side of the heart to fail. So if you look at a, a, a heart specimen, a cadaver specimen, you, you can see the, the, the left ventricle is very thick and it's, it's pumping against high pressure. You know, you know, normal blood pressure systolic is 120 millimeters of mercury. So it's pumping against high pressure. Whereas the right side of the heart is only pumping against, you know, 20 millimeters of mercury pressure all the time, normally. If you suddenly increase the pressure in the lungs, you increase the, the if there's clot burden in the lungs, and that pressure goes up in the pulmonary arteries, the right side of the heart will fail acutely. Mm. And that's what causes people to die from pulmonary embolism. So putting the patient like that on venovenous ECMO will not help them because they will, they'll be in cardiogenic shock. So you must pull the blood out of the venous system, the IBC, but you, when you return it, you have to return it to the arterial circulation. So, okay, so take, take us through that, take us through that very quickly again on uh, the VA and then which patients other than the PE patients are good candidates for VA ECMO. Yeah. So, so for example, for a pulmonary embolism patient that's in shock, so they're, they're in right ventricular shock essentially, right. And hypoxic, um, we, we have to support their hemodynamics. They're not, just supporting their lungs is not going to help. You know, their lungs are not the primary issue. So we need to support their hemodynamics, support the right side of the heart. Um, we also need to treat the PE, you know, and that's a whole nother, a topic for another, <laughs> another podcast. But um, in the absence of being able to acutely remove the clot, or if the patient is really an extremist and, and is not stable enough to have anything like that done at the time, what we can do is support them with ECMO. So we'll, we'll pull the volume out of the IBC. So we're unloading the right side of the heart. We're not allowing most of that blood flow to even go to the right side of the heart, right? We're removing most of the venous blood flow through the huge cannula in the IBC. And then we're, we're pumping that blood back into the distal aorta. So we are providing the oxygen, the gas exchange, and we're giving the patient systemic circulation into the arterial system. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. So is that then what makes it um, ECMO when, it, especially when it comes to PEs, you can have things like unloading the left ventricle, but in a PE, uh, it's unless you're going to use um, a right sided right. impella as well. Right. Um, but uh, speak to uh, you, you said that with um, impella, you can get about, you know, the percutaneous one, uh, about three and a half liters per minute. What can you get with ECMO? So ECMO, the, the maximum that you can get is seven liters per minute. Mm. Generally speaking, in terms of the, I'd say for the average patient with the average size cannulas that we put in, you probably get anywhere from four and a half to five and a half liters per minute of flow. And, um, and that's a fair amount of flow. I mean, you can get five and a half liters of cardiac output on a shock patient. You're doing pretty well, you know? So even if the patient's heart isn't contributing any cardiac output, you're able to support them perfectly fine. So it sounds to me like this is a almost, if you explain the physio, the physiology behind it, it sounds like a miracle intervention. You know, uh, but, uh, you know, like you've already said that there are several complications that may go with it. What kind of survival rates um, are we talking about here? Are we talking about a pretty significant improvement in survival rates? Yeah. It, so it, globally for cardiac patients, the survival rate. Now, these are, you know, these are the sickest of the sick patients. You know, mm -hmm. you don't most places don't think about using ECMO unless a patient is is um, in extremis, you know, they're, they're failing other modes of support. They're failing the ventilator. So these are extremely sick patients on the verge of death that we put on ECMO, you know? So that being considered, there's about, I would say a 40% survival for uh, 40 to 50% survival for cardiogenic shock. Okay. Mm. Um, now that's not, you know, that's not all comers cardiogenic shock. This is the cardiogenic shock that has now failed and Pella failed, you know, inotropes. And so this is like stage E sky stage E um, cardiogenic shock is what I, what we would call it as interventionalists, the worst shock that you can have. Um, so, so for shock, that's about what the survival is now for, for Vino Venus ECMO, the survival is generally much better than that. Um, before COVID we were seeing survival rates around 70% for Veno venous ECMO patients, so wow. H1N1, ARDS. So we would put them on, we would rest their lungs for a week, maybe two weeks, sometimes longer on occasion, and the lungs would recover in the vast majority of cases. Now with COVID, um, particularly since the Delta um, variant has become the predominant variant, mm. the survival with ECMO has decreased from, from that 70% down to around 30 to 40%. Wow. Um, so it's, it's not anywhere near as good. That's terrible. And it is. And, and part of the reason for that is that, um, one, despite resting the lungs with COVID, sometimes that conti it continues to destroy the lung tissue, no matter how much you rest them. And also COVID will continue to involve other organs, you know, no matter how much resting you're giving the patient, it will progress to invading other organs. So, you know, I, it's better than zero. <laughs> Right. Um, it's not right. 70, you know, it's 30 to 40, but, um, we have had some, some pretty good saves even with COVID patients. That sure. just, that just kind of expresses the gravity of COVID though. I mean, absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. Now the, the shock, um, you know, we talked about PE, but 
there's other kinds of shock that will treat as well. So you could have patients that have an, a huge anterior MI, for example, um, you know, a late presenting infarct where they have a, a mechanical complication of an MI. So um, acute ventricular septal defects, which we're seeing, unfortunately, in, in this pandemic, we're seeing more patients than I have in a decade of, of practice, over a decade of practice. I haven't seen so many mechanical complications of MI as I have in, in the past year. Wow. Um, and, and people are coming in late, you know, with their MIs. They're just waiting too long. And they're coming in with acute mitral regurgitation because of a papillary muscle rupture in the heart, a mm. ventricular septal defect, because the, the tissue is just necrosed by the time they come in. And those patients a lot of times will present with shock. So that, that ECMO is an option for patients like that to bridge them to get to the point where they can have a surgical repair of whatever that, that um, injury is that they had. So, you know, we talked a lot about, um, obviously, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the cardiac here in just a little bit, but we talked, uh, you know, the, about the COVID and uh, cardiology. Uh, what other uh, modalities have you used this uh, in, um, you know, trauma uh, or, or things like that? Where, where have you had experience with that? Yeah, I'd, I'd say the majority of them are medical ICU patients with um with lung injury, we have had, there are indications for um, air leak syndromes. So we've had patients um, with traumatic injury to the trachea, for example, that can't ventilate somebody that, that, that has an injured trachea. So um, we put them on ECMO and then they went to the operating room. Um, and you, you can't be any more stable than being on, on ECMO to go to the operating room. Um, because you're, we're doing all the gas exchange for them. So um, they were able to repair the trachea on, on, on a patient that had a, a tracheal laceration following a motor vehicle accident. You know, I think there are indications for ECMO in traumatic injuries, but one of the important contraindications to doing ECMO is, is that patients bleed because we use anticoagulation. So, um, you know, even in the best of situations where there's no trauma, there can be bleeding issues, you know, because they're so anticoagulated and their blood is going through this plastic tubing and the clotting factors, a lot of times the clotting factors and platelets are consumed by the circuit and we have to replace a lot of those. And so people are just pr prone to bleed when they're on ECMO. And so, um, and that's even with if you didn't have heparin going, but we have a lot of times we'll have heparin or angiomax, bivalorubin, some sort of blood thinner to keep the blood from clotting inside that plastic tubing. Um, because, you know, your body's response to being exposed to something foreign is form a clot, heal, you know, that's the immediate response is platelet plug, you know. So as soon as yeah. the blood gets, gets exposed to that tubing, it, the propensity will be for that to clot. So if a patient cannot be anticoagulated and they, you know, they have a tra trauma that, that involves a significant amount of blood loss, then obviously we wouldn't want to put them on ECMO. Um, we can use it for, you know, post bypass. So it's very similar to a cardiopulmonary bypass machine that perfusionists put patients on in the operating room. It's basically the same thing. Um, so if a patient is unable to be weaned off of that bypass machine in the operating room and they've had open heart surgery, 
then we can put them on that machine temporarily to support them so that they can get through those first few post-operative days. So when you have a patient coming in, um, in let's go to VA ECMO, and they're in cardiogenic shock, they're in ex- extremis, they're very, very sick, and you have to put them on ECMO. From the time they arrive, you know, say to the cath lab, um, what's the time frame that you can get somebody, realistically, that you can get somebody put on? It's actually pretty fast. I mean, it's it involves... the the placing of a patient on ECMO I'd say is probably the easiest part of the whole thing um, because it's, it's the taking care of the patient for the weeks following your cannulation that are the most difficult. Um, I, you know, it involves a venous access and an arterial access or two venous accesses. And, you know, as interventional cardiologists, it takes us very little time to do that. I mean, I, I'd say we could probably have a patient on ECMO within 15 minutes at the wow. most. Um, and you know, that's in an emergency situation, we could probably do it faster, you know? Um, but it's, it's, it's what we do every day. You know, it's arterial access, percutaneous access, uh, with a needle in the vein and, and then the artery. And, um, and once you have the access, it's really a matter of just inserting small, inserting, uh, sequentially increasing size tubes to dilate up that track where you're going to go in until you can get that large cannula in and it doesn't take that long. We've got a pretty well-oiled machine. And one of those, um, w- one of the things I, th- I think too, as we talk about resources, uh, one of the things that speeds that up, talk about um, having a pump ready and oh, what yeah. kind of resources that go into time saving? How does that translate to better care? But what is the, what is the uh, resource that's needed for that? Yeah, that's, uh, thank you for asking that. So if we have, um, so in my current practice uh, at Northside, we have um, six pumps and um, which we're not using all of them right now because as we all know, there's a nursing shortage. So, um, but just as an example, if you have, if you have six pumps, you can have five patients on at any given time. And that last pump will be used as a backup. So if, if a patient is on ECMO and their circuit fails, you've got to have a pump ready to go for that patient. Um, the, um, the benefit of having a, a pump ready to go all the time, 24-7, is that if a patient codes, you know, if we have an eCPR case, we call it extracorporeal CPR, a patient that um, is in our unit, for example, that, that had a heart attack and um, and we want to, and we want to put them on ECMO because they're in cardiogenic shock. We can do that very, very quickly because we have a primed circuit already ready to go. So what that basically means is that the entire circuit, the pump, the tubing, everything is primed with, with fluid and ready for us to clamp and attach to a cannula. So that saves us probably about 10 minutes of time that it would take to prime that circuit and get all the air out of it. So we are able to keep those, uh, a circuit primed all the time uh, in case of those emergencies. So I I do think that's important and that's not something that we've always done. Um, We have recently started doing that and I think it does shave a lot of time off and and potentially improve the outcomes. And, And that's an investment the system makes too, right? I mean, if you don't put a patient on, it's eventually gonna expire. 
right. in, a, in a matter of weeks. And then you have to throw that, you have to throw that away. So that is a cost that That's is incurred. To, and these to... circuits are not cheap. Um, you know, we don't, we don't throw away the, the pump. The centrifugal pump is what's not disposable, but you know, the pump head that is attached to the disposable tubing and the oxygenator. Um, and I'm sure that we can share some pictures um, with everybody that, that, that is a very expensive component. And um, it, it does get thrown away if we don't use it within a, a, a 30 day period. So wow. we only will keep it primed for 30 days. Now it's primed under sterile technique. And theoretically you could use it longer than that, but for safety, you know, we just want to make sure that we don't have any um, increased risk for infection. So it's 30 days and then we throw it out. Now that does, it doesn't happen often where we won't use the circuit, but, but it can. Yeah, but I think that's an important investment and in working within a system of care. That's the administrative side that, you know, they could easily probably say, no, Absolutely. that's too expensive and um, people are going to be harmed. So take us through, uh, let's kind of move to the critical care side. So you put a patient on VA or VV. Um, in your experience, what's the, not necessarily what's the longest that somebody can stay on, but what's, uh, you know, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, um, what are we looking at that you're going to care for these patients? Sure. The, for the cardiac patients in particular, they generally don't stay on more than a couple days. Mm-hmm. Um, even the patients who we've put on in the midst of, of CPR, um, the eCPR cases, those patients usually recover pretty quickly. Like you, you get them on, they get some oxygen to their heart, their you know, sinus rhythm returns, and within 24 hours, 48 hours, you're able to wean them off. Um, so if we don't see improvement in the heart function within a 24 to 48 hour period, then we're thinking about what are the long-term, what's the long-term plan for this patient? Is this going to be a patient that needs to get a left ventricular uh, implantable LVAD, you know, a durable LVAD implanted in their heart, or is this a transplant um, candidate? But the goal is to, you know, get the patient off ECMO and their heart recovered. And and that does happen in the majority of cases. Um, For the VV, I'd say the venovenous, so the respiratory patients are a little less predictable. So they're they're a little less complicated to take care of because you're not providing the hemodynamic support that you are with the VA ECMO. Um, so their hearts are functioning okay. They tend to be slightly less sick in that regard, but they usually take significantly longer to get better. And in the, in the pandemic, um, it's the average time is about 35 days on ECMO. Um, it's a long time. Wow. That's average. Um, so we don't expect a patient to start showing any signs of improvement within the first week or two of putting them on. And that's something I actually, I, I seem, I constantly remind everybody at, at, at the hospital of this, everybody at rounds, you know, we have to be reminded of that because we're, we're the type of people that like to see instant gratification, as I mentioned at the beginning. And, and there really is not any instant gratification with, with COVID ECMO. Um, the longest, I mean, I've heard of people being on ECMO for a year or longer. Oh my um, gosh. And, um, and that's not that uncommon. I mean, there's, there's a, if you look it up, there's a handful of cases you can read about, but I'd say for us, the longest that we've ever had a patient on was around two months. Um, 
but you know, we expect with COVID, it's going to be over a month on it. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, would you, um, COVID I think has probably humbled a lot of us too. Um, Absolutely. I mean, and it, something, something that you touched on that I want, I, people that have not experienced this, um, especially EMS, this is going to be something that, that people are not used to tell us about ECMO rounds and yeah. what happens with those and why they're so important. Yeah. When we started our program, so um, when we started at Northside, we wanted to have a, a multidisciplinary team, as I mentioned at the beginning, which is extremely important for these patients. So who but, are some of those that are, are on that multidisciplinary yes. so, team? So the critical care physicians, so we always have a critical care doc. We've got our ECMO nurse and our ECMO coordinator, our bedside nurse, our respiratory therapist, our physical therapist, um, nutrition, and a pharmacist on rounds with us every day on these every day. Every That's day. crazy. So it's a big. Um, we yeah. I mean, it's a it's a big group that just moves from patient to patient, and we have multiple patients on, and it's extraordinarily important that that we do this and we do it regularly and um, and without variation because it, 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 what happens if you don't have that is that you have kind of a piecemeal approach to taking care of these patients and you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen and nobody knows what the other person's doing. And I've seen that happen before and it, it just doesn't work well. So you really have to have that cohesive group to take care of these patients. And that's, that's a, a big challenge in a lot of places. It really, I mean, it sounds like it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Like, hey, let's just schedule this time. Everybody come. You really have to have buy-in from all these people. Mm -hmm. you, you have to. And, um, and I, I feel like everybody needs to feel like they have a purpose on the team, that they're contributing to the team, um, and get, get, some gratification out of taking care of these patients. And I, I think that they are some of the most gratifying patients to care for. And the, the people who are on the ECMO rounds look forward to it. You know, I mean, it's, there's learning that happens. We talk about data. Um, we talk about the ELSO registry, the Excorporeal Life Support Organization mm. has a registry for COVID-19 where, where places around the globe are, are registering patient data on um, COVID-19 ECMO. And that's all we have. We really don't have a lot of, we don't have randomized studies to guide our treatment yeah. COVID-19. So it's important. The, all of these discussions are important. And the multidisciplinary team really provides a depth of care that, that I don't, I, that I feel is unparalleled with any other way of taking care of patients. And speaking of the team, what type of specialized training are we talking about? I know we've mentioned nurses a good bit. Um, is there any extra or what type of extra training do nurses have to go through? Um, I know you mentioned perfusionists. You know, I know that there's a big difference between perfusionists and somebody working on a net mode device. Yeah. So that's a good question because there, there are different ways to set up a program for ECMO and excuse me um so some programs will have a nurse driven program so the nurses at the bedside have learned how to take care of the ECMO circuit and um do not need a perfusionist or anybody else to help them you know that they'll physicians are around as a backup you know 
but they're able to manage any alarms that come up, emergencies. And the way that they're trained to do that is not only by taking didactic courses, but importantly, by doing regular wet labs that are run by our, by our ECMO coordinator. So they have to prove hands-on that they know how to handle, for example, if there's an air bubble in the arterial um, side of the circuit, how do you get that air bubble out? Um, so they need to know those things have to happen quickly and there can't always be someone there to hold their hands. They have to be able to do that. Now there's other programs where instead of the nurse being the primary person in charge of the pump, it will be um, a respiratory therapist. So a respiratory therapist could be trained to do to do all of this. Wow. Um, of course, a, a bedside nurse would be taking care of the, the nursing part of the patient, the patient themselves, the drips, et cetera. But the pump itself could be managed by a respiratory therapist. And uh, probably more commonly um, is a perfusion-driven system. So where they actually have perfusionists, the perfusionists are the ones who run the heart-lung bypass machines in the operating room that they'll actually have them sitting pump in the room with the patient. That is um, a little bit more, um, that there's a little bit more resources involved with doing that because perfusionists are a limited resource themselves. They spend a lot of time in the operating room and to have them coming in just to sit pump yeah. is, is costly. You know, so, so we've chosen to, to go the route of, of teaching our nurses how to do it because the nurses are there taking care of the patients. Um, and it works ex extremely well. Um, and I think a lot of places are starting to move in that direction. And, and you might even have a uh, paramedic turned nurse taking yeah. care of some of these yeah, patients. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. Right. Okay. So let's let's uh, let's kind of move on um, here. Uh, we know this is probably uh, eCPR. So this is probably we could get an entire episode out of this. But I think we'd be remiss if we didn't take a chance to uh, talk about this a little bit. So tell us kind of what is eCPR, um, wh who is using it, and what does this kind of look like potentially yeah. in the future? Yeah. This is a topic that excites people. So eCPR or extracorporeal CPR is what, what I call crashing a patient onto ECMO, which is basically a patient that is actively coding mm. that instead of, if you can't get a pulse back, you can't get ROS, you put them on ECMO, okay? Because if you're able to support them on ECMO, we can support the heart and lungs, then you don't need to be doing CPR, okay? So, um, it it is good point it is uh yeah exactly <laughs> so, you support the heart and lungs with ecmo yeah. you stop compression um it is not standard of care whatsoever or anywhere really um there are places around the country that have and around the world in fact um particularly in paris that have developed ecpr out of hospital ecpr programs um, I've mentioned before, there's a, a, a physician by the name of Dimitri Yiannopoulos, who happens to also be an interventional cardiologist. And he um, has basically devoted his whole life to doing this ECPR stuff. L literally. Literally his whole life. I mean, 24 I hours. He's on 24-7. I think now he has a little bit of a tea. <laughs> he does. And, and he has a, um, this is in Minnesota, and he has a, a mobile cath lab, essentially, uh, um, 
a mobile cath lab that he brings with him to cannulate these patients. That's insane. And that's actually an important point because even with the experience that he has doing ECMO, he routinely will do ECPR in the cath lab. So before he had, and I, and I bring him up because he, he's done more of this than anybody else. And, and even he hasn't done that much. I mean, if you look at the actual raw right. numbers, it's not that many patients that they've done, but he's done more than anybody else. Um, but he does all of them in the cath lab. So it, he doesn't, you know, crash people on, um, you know, at, at, Publix or you know at the Louvre like they do in Paris. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> Yet, um, yeah. Hopefully, but, that's the goal one day. I know, right? So, <laughs> hey, can you give me a uh, a venti dark roast? It'll be about 10, 15 minutes. Won't take long. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there are you know in in Europe there have been cannulations that are you know I showed a picture at the Louvre. Um, and the streets, you know, at uh, marathons, people have fall, have gone down and, and been put on ECMO. But that's kind of few and far between. I think Yiannopoulos has done more than anybody else, and he has a mobile cath lab. So, and, and if he's in his hospital, he's generally bringing that patient to the cath lab with a mechanical compression device going, a Lucas, um, and, and puts them on. And, and he can do, he can put somebody on very quickly in the cath lab. And the benefit to being in the cath lab is, multi-fold but but one of the things is that we have fluoroscopy which is um you know it's important because we're using very stiff wires so when we're advancing wires into the heart you can actually cause trauma to the heart and perforate the atrium for example or perforate the inferior vena cava so there are risks with cannulating blindly okay um and and so that's one benefit of being in a cath lab. And the other thing is that it's a sterile environment. It's a controlled environment. You know, all the equipment is right there. Um, so what, what we've done is um, we have a, a, a cart that we keep our stuff in. So we have what we call our ECMO cart, and it has all the potential um, pieces of equipment that we need if we have to crash somebody on or if we have to change a, a circuit over emergently. We can, we can do that pretty quickly. Um, and we have had the opportunity to actually to do an eCPR case recently that, that went very well because we have that equipment all um, in one spot, you know? Yeah. So I think being organized helps do with doing eCPR, but the key is the timing. Kind of the, at this point where we stand right now globally with eCPR is that it is not standard of care it mm. works for young patients that have a potentially reversible cause for their cardiac arrest. Um, and, you know, the timing has to be right. You know, it's most places don't have 24 seven interventional cardiologist or CT surgeon or whoever it is that's running ECMO um, or perfusionist in house. Yeah. So it's, it's not reasonable to think that, that we will have 24 seven eCPR available at any point in the very near future. However, I do think as there's more data coming, um, that, that that may be eventually be something that, that is done more commonly. And I, I think it's going to be an important discussion point in educating first responders because when you respond to a cardiac arrest, it might, if, if you can get to an eCPR site Boom. in a quick, in a, in a short period of time or a reasonable period of time 
and have that team alerted in advance, they can meet you there and you could be cannulated within 60 minutes of, of down of, um, of cardiac arrest, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's an important, that's an important piece. And I think uh, as EMS needs to understand that. So first of all, let's go back to, um, Dr. Yiannopoulos did the first randomized control trial, um, the arrest trial recently and showed, uh, just tremendous, uh, outcomes, but not everybody has the resource. Like you said, not everybody has that same resource, but, um, as you kind of pointed out, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've done in EMS is we've said, you know, a cardiac arrest is a cardiac arrest there. We can probably work them better on a scene than we can in the back of an ambulance. We can work them in the in the back of an ambulance better than we can, you know, moving down the road or inside of an ED. But um, how does this, especially with refractory V-fib specifically, how should that change the mentality? And I think you kind of went into it, but maybe clarify that. How does that kind of change the mentality on scene um, for a V-fib arrest? Yeah, I I think if, and and we don't have a, we don't have a ECPR protocol in place right now. You know, I, I can't, I can't say that, you know, if a VFib patient um, gets brought in by ambulance, that we will have ECPR ready to go every single time. I just can't. I wish I could promise that every time, but it's just not. You know, there's there's no way that I can say that. But I I think the the thing that's so important about it is the communication and the um, the quick communication and the thorough communication that we get. Yes. So, um, and the more thorough, the better. So if 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 a VFib arrest has good bystander CPR, you know, they, they haven't had a a long downtime without CPR before EMS arrives. And we know that, which is important for us to know, um, you know, they weren't getting inadequate CPR on, on a mattress. And, and, um, we know the exact downtime that the patient went down and we know the exact rhythm. We know that it was V-fib as the initial rhythm, that was shockable rhythm. Then, Eventually, what I would like to to have in place is a protocol to say, you do one round of ACLS, and if you don't get ROSC, you get in the ambulance and you continue ACLS, and you call and you say, we're in route with a VFRS, and have all the data that we need in terms of downtime, um, you know, initial rhythm, age, comorbidities, those sorts of things. And these are all things that I look forward to working on. I think that we have the potential to really improve cardiac arrest outcomes if we can come up with a good algorithm for how to take care of particularly ventricular fibrillation arrests. Yeah, absolutely. Before we move on from destinations and that system of care approach, how do you think this changes or how should this change a paramedic's decision-making process on destination? And, you know, if you don't mind, you can talk about how Georgia is structured as far as cardiac care designation centers. Um, but, uh, but yeah, how should that change the paramedics mindset? Yeah. So yeah, I'm sure that most people have probably heard about the emergency cardiac care center designation. So, um, being level one essentially means that you have all of the potential, um, treatments available to a cardiac patient who is in cardiogenic shock. Okay. So open heart surgery, mechanical circulatory support, 24 seven STEMI care. Um, and in, in taking care in, in caring for as a, as a first responder and caring for 
a patient who had a cardiac arrest, we already know those patients are going to be the sickest of the sick. It doesn't, I mean, if you get a, if you get a rhythm back, great, but it may not stay that way, you know? Um, so, and, and I can't, I can't say, um, bypass a hospital, bypass every hospital and come straight to me. But what I can say <laughs> is that, that, that taking a patient that's that sick and bypassing a hospital that doesn't have a cath lab mm. is absolutely the right thing to do. And coming to an, a level one emergency cardiac care center with a patient that sick is very, very likely to improve that patient's outcome. So they're much more likely to walk out of the hospital if you bring a patient to a level one cardiac care center. Okay? Because if they deteriorate, they are not going to then have to be transported. To yeah, the there's options. There are options, right? Yeah. Um, so we can put them on ECMO until their heart recovers, you know, we can put an impella in, we can send them for surgery if they need it. So it's, I do think that the decision-making for the first responders is, it's difficult. I, and I, I realize that, but it's such an important decision, that split second decision that you make to stop or go to stop or pass, um, is, can be the difference between life or death for a patient. Um, I can't stress that enough. And I know that that's, that's a lot of pressure, yeah. <laughs> but, but knowing, but knowing where, which hospitals have the full gamut of things to offer a patient, I think is an important thing to have in your toolbox. You know? That's incredibly important. And I will actually add one more thing to that of, um, you know, you can search on Elso, you can search places that say they do ECMO. Um, but I hope what we've learned from you is that it's not a matter of being able to put somebody on ECMO. It's the, do you have the full complement, the multidisciplinary team that's going to be able to manage these patients? Are you going to put them on ECMO, ship them out? Um, are you making the right decisions on who should be put on ECMO? Um, you know, not everybody, not everybody should be. Um, right. but, uh, hopefully people will, uh, you know, those that are listening will reach out to their ECMO centers and understand about what it means to have an ECMO program. Cause I think that's yeah. a big, that's a big distinction. You know, you could probably take a lot. I mean, there's a, um, not only interventional cardiologists, vascular surgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons, ER physicians yep. are putting people on ECMO, but who's mm. going to manage them for the next, um, you know, right. 20, 30 days. Um, right. so it, really requir it requires yeah. a champion. It really, you, you've got yeah. to have a champion. And that's, right. that's a big piece of it for sure. And I think too, and we didn't really go into this, but I'll just tell people that what I know of you is not just a champion clinically, but you have to have someone that's willing to go, um, you know, beat on the doors of uh, administration to say, <laughs> this is what we need. We have to have this. We have to have this in place. You know, we have to have the right ECMO coordinator. Um, you know, I hope, uh, here, here soon, we're going to be able to meet the ECMO coordinator that works with you. Um, but that's, you know, that's a huge piece, um, that I think a lot of centers are, are missing. So, well, and not only that too, what yeah. you have done in reaching out to EMS, you know, you, you went all the way down to Jekyll and presented to the EMS Georgia EMS conference. I mean, that's not the first time you've done that, but that's a hugely important part too. Yeah. Oh. It's huge. And, and I so enjoy that part of it. I mean, it's, um, it's a team. It takes a village to take care of these patients. Yeah. I, you know, every single person that touches that patient 
is a part of that patient's life. And like I said, the, the first decision that's made is by the first responders. Yeah. And, and that's, um, I think that we have the potential to really, really improve cardiac arrest survival and cardiogenic shock survival if we can all work together on it. And, and we have, uh, we have to have places that can, um, track these data as well mm-hmm. and the outcomes and know that if we're doing what we're doing, is it the right thing or do we need to make adjustments on that? Yeah. So let me just finish up this. And I, I don't, I, I don't know if you have anything uh, prepared, but we always like to ask, um, could you share a success story? Just something that kind of uh, brings this all around to something practical to say, there's somebody alive today because of the system that was put in place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can share the ECPR story we had, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, So we had, and I'm not sure HIPAA-wise how much I can say, but um, we had a a young woman um, who was was pregnant, um, 20 weeks pregnant, who was admitted to the internal, excuse me, the critical care service and um, had been found down, but was, but had a pulse. Um, I think she had a respiratory arrest at home. So she came in, got admitted to critical care. They were doing a workup on her. She was intubated um, and she arrested. She arrested just a few hours after getting to the, to the ICU. And nobody knows exactly what happened. As I said, she was 20 weeks pregnant, Um, but she went into PEA and literally within a couple minutes of her arresting, we, the ECMO team was called. Um, Somebody knew that we, that we were around and um, gave us a call and we actually rolled all of our equipment over there with our ECMO cart and put her on, uh, on ECMO she was getting chest compressions and I don't remember how long it took us to get her on, but it was very, very quick and, um, stabilized her on ECMO. And within three days, she was basically her heart had completely recovered. Um, it turns out her RV had dilated, had blown out, basically dilated. Um, Mm. and we think it probably was an amniotic fluid embolism. Oh, wow. They with 100% certainty. And unfortunately, you can't really with certainty diagnose those. Um, so we believe that's what caused it because her heart, her right side of her heart failed and then very quickly recovered within a couple of days. And she um, actually went home. Um, she actually went home, no neurologic deficits, um, total downtime, you know, with CPR. The CPR time was about, I think, 18 minutes. Mm. And, um, and, and she's doing really well. So that's a success, ECPR success story, but we've had several COVID-19 success stories, which have been amazing. I mean, you see these patients that have no lungs on chest x-ray, completely whited out that are able to, to leave the hospital. We had one that went for lung transplant. Um, so we've had, we've had some good successes and we are a, we're a small program so far, but we are, I think we're going to be rapidly growing. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, I think this probably leads us to, uh, you know, a thousand other questions that, uh, you know, we'd love to maybe have you back for, but, uh, this has been a great overview. And I think, um, 
with better understanding is going to become better decisions, uh, better care, better outcomes. Well, thank you. And I would love for you guys to share my my email with everybody. So if anybody has questions, I'm, I'm always more than happy to take questions from people. Awesome. I love, I love it. So send me, send me an email. My personal email is Allison at AllisonDupont.com. So say that again, Allison at AllisonDupont.com. Two L's and an I. <laughs> A-L-L-I-S-O-N at AllisonDupont.com. And whenever I post the video, I'll make sure it flashes up. <laughs> every, every time you say it, <laughs> Allison at AllisonDupont. Yeah. And her cell phone number is, oh, never mind. We probably should do that. Oh, but wait a minute. But wait, uh, so Twitter, what's what's your Twitter handle? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Twitterverse. Yeah. Allison underscore DuPont. Well, at Allison underscore DuPont. Nice. Yeah. Follow me on Twitter. That's right. <laughs> At TikTok. I lot, I more, like, fun, more, more like fight me on Twitter bring it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i try to stay out of any any politics or anything yeah. like that no, stick with the medical not. stuff that's right Those are a few dog you've been listening to medic class citizen if you like what you heard check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com also find us on social media where you can follow like subscribe and share twitter instagram facebook and we also have videos on youtube thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time Thank you.